I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Laura Geisert and Adrian Frost. This month, we're reading Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation of Children's Learning by Lisa Murphy. Let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are going to be discussing Chapter 13 of Lisa Murphy on Play. But right now, let's get into a little game as we like to do at the beginning of the episode. And then stay tuned at the end of our game for all the great content from Chapter 13. Okay, Laura, so I'm going to go ahead and start my question. It's a little bit deep, so (laughs) I'm not trying to freak you out. What advice would you give to your 18-year-old self? Oh, my goodness. I was just talking about this recently. When you look back on your life and you think about all of those decisions that you really regretted, that you worried about, that you thought, oh, I wish I'd done something differently, they're all from before you were like 25. And we know now, we've been learning a lot this year, that our brains are not fully developed until the age of 25, especially our frontal lobes. So that period between like the age of 13 and 25, I just feel like I made a lot of decisions that kept me up at night where I just went, I wish I'd said something different. I wish I hadn't done that. And I would go Mm. back and tell myself, just don't worry about it. You're not even done forming your brain. (laughs) Your brain is not ready. It's not your fault. Your decision making is just not developed. And by the time you're in your 30s, you're not going to have those sleepless nights anymore because you're going to think things through. This is just part of being young. That's it. Yeah, that's pretty good advice. What would you tell yourself? I think I would tell myself, which this actually might just be like a thought pattern issue that I personally have a cognitive distortion, if you will. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like when I'm going through something, it just feels like it's going to be this way forever. Okay, yeah. And I'm sure there's a name for that. But it's just hard for me to like see a future where something is different. But I think when I look at my life now, and I look back at when I was 18, and what I thought my life would look like when I was the age I am now, or what I thought what path I was on, it's like things change. 
And I would encourage myself, you know, be a little more flexible, be a little more open. <laughs> and we know from um, Smart But Scattered that one of my executive functioning weaknesses is flexibility. So it makes sense. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so that's what I would tell myself. Yeah. When I hear that teenagers are going through a hard time, I always just you want to just go, oh, you like nothing lasts forever. You will get through this period. There is, it's such a hard period for everybody and some more than others. And you just want to go, it doesn't stay like this forever. You get through everything. Totally. And to your point, Laura, like it does really suck that when you're 18, you're being forced to make like really big life decisions that are going to impact the rest of your life. College, choosing a major. That's so much pressure when you're 18. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was way too much for me. I could not choose a major. And in the beginning of my junior year, they forced me to. They're like, (laughs) time's up, ma'am. It was like, hey, girl, you're not going to graduate unless you pick a major. (laughs) I didn't even understand what I was doing. I was just taking courses and had very little guidance. Having fun. Yeah, having a lot of fun. Okay, I've got a question for you. Okay, I'm ready. What is... This is interesting because other than being an SLP, I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about another job. What's the worst job you've ever had? Well, that was not the direction I thought the question was going to go. I was ready to like talk about what job I'd rather. I think that's on the list too. If you had a different job, what would it be? You can do that one. Okay. Well, the answer to worst job I've ever had is I had a barista job. When I was looking through the list of questions, to ask you, I saw, would you rather wake up early or stay up late? And my answer is, I would much rather stay up late. Like waking up early is a nightmare for me. And that barista job sucked so bad because I had to be there at like 5am. And I was 18 years old, like 18 year olds are supposed to sleep their lives away. Yeah, that's like the point of being 18. (laughs) (laughs) So that job was a bummer. And I just felt like I had to go to bed early and I couldn't have any fun. And I was like groggy in the morning and I was making everybody's coffee terribly, horribly. Okay. And then if I had another job, I would like to do something with old things. I would love to be like an expert antique appraiser, maybe work for like Antiques Roadshow or Sotheby's. Of course. Or maybe some sort of an expert in historical architecture. Okay. I love when they do the Antiques Roadshows where they've found like an old Tiffany's lamp or oh yeah, like a, like a Tiffany's skylight. I love Don't. just the people, the people oh. who are so specialized in that, like they only know Tiffany's lamps and yeah. you're like, that's your whole life. That's it. That's, that's it. And then they start talking about it and you're like, and you are the expert for a reason, you know, quite a lot. <laughs> You're the only person I'd go to about this. Yeah, don't get me started on Antiques Roadshow because I will <laughs> go off. But I did see one episode with a Tiffany lamp. And actually, the items that they brought for appraisal, it was like a lot of Tiffany glass that her like great aunt had purchased at during the Depression because it was really cheap. So she had like some vases and some lamps and stuff. And you know, the one that was the most expensive was the ugliest. Of course. Of course. Yeah. But the box, the like wooden box that they were shipped in, I think appraised for like five grand. It was just the wooden box. I think I've seen that one. And it <laughs> yeah. had Tiffany written on it. Stuffed with some like sawdust or something or some yeah. like hay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was going to say 
being a barista was one of my favorite jobs. We are total opposites. I love getting up as early as possible. And when I was in college, I worked at a coffee cart on campus, like in front of the library at UC Santa Barbara. And my friend and I would race to see who could make the drinks faster. I mean, I just, I was obsessed with working at a coffee cart. I loved it. I was just hopped up on espresso (laughs) all day long, just like going crazy. (laughs) But yeah, 545. I used to have to be there at 540. No, maybe it was 645. I think we opened at seven. It's reasonable. That's like reasonable. But my worst job, I got hired when Abercrombie & Fitch opened in Fresno when I was about to leave for college. I got recruited at a restaurant by their crazy recruitment team (laughs) and I got hired, but I was not one of their prized employees. So I had to work after the store closed. (laughs) You still had to wear... I think that there have been lawsuits since, but you ha- you could only wear their clothes from like the current season and they had us all come in before the store opened and they picked our outfits for us that we had to buy. They made us all like I was crammed into clothes that were too small for me. I just remember it was a total nightmare and I had to just fold clothes, was never allowed to work when the store was open. Oh, I'm obsessed with this story. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, oh, there's customers. Go in the back. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So horrible business model, Abercrombie and Fitch. Let Laura work. Let her meet some hot guys. It's 2002. Let her at it. I know. Okay, everyone. We hope you enjoyed learning a little bit more about us. Stay tuned as we discuss chapter 13, all about discussions, believe it or not, from Lisa Murphy on play. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. (laughs) The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at slp underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP Book Club. Hi, Laura. 
Hi, Adrian. Here we are, chapter 13 of Lisa Murphy on Play. And the title of this chapter is Make Time Each Day to Discuss. So all you speech language pathologists out there, this is our chapter. <laughs> yeah, if there's one episode that you listen to from this book, this one should be the one, right? 100%. <laughs> so I'm going to try not to harp too much on things that we already know about the importance of language, but... We might have some non-SLPs, educators, or parents listening, so I'm going to go over the basics, but I really enjoyed this chapter. I thought she had some interesting takes on certain things. Same. I mean, they'll come up as you're talking, but she just had a little bit of a different perspective than I have had in the past about the way we discuss things with kids. I'm interested to hear. Okay, well, as we all know, through talking and listening, we all learn how to organize our thoughts, communicate, problem solve, and develop social skills. So kids continually want to talk about their new ideas, their experiences, you know, their lunchbox, um, what their dog did yesterday, just anything they can think of. And prior to age seven, children literally think out loud. But we need to remember that not every statement that a child makes needs to be responded to. She says it's important to remember that not everything needs to be responded to because not everything is for you. So that might be the first statement, Laura, where I'm like, oh, I never really thought of it that way. Well, you know, this magical age of seven that we're going to talk about here, where suddenly you can think inside your head and not <laughs> like blurt out everything. Yeah. Where you're just you have language that you keep in your head. I don't know if I knew that or have heard that exactly. It was a new fact for me, too. I don't know how we missed that. Like, are all the SLPs going to be listening to this? Like, how do you not know? <laughs> but at this podcast, we like to admit when we don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> so that was new for us. <laughs> yeah, to think that, you know, kids just are talking instead of thinking. Like, they're thinking, but it's coming out of their mouth. And so, yeah, it doesn't have to be that you respond to every little thing. You can just let them talk. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I love that. So it's a good idea to reflect the child's statement back to them, which allows you to let them know that you heard them. And if they have more to say, they'll elaborate or they might say nothing. You never know. And both are okay. She mentions a book called Smart Moves by Carla Hannaford. And she the author, Carla, mentions that the need to talk out loud and hear one's own voice is so important that some experts feel that silent, independent reading is essentially ineffective until approximately age seven. So that was also a new fact. Seven is also the same time that children begin to learn how to internalize language or engage in self-talk, which is the prelude to the ability to engage in rational thought. So we all know that talking is essential to language development and thinking. However, when kids are really talking a lot in the classroom, it can be very, very noisy. So schools tend to have less of a willingness for children to engage in verbal processing because they want it to be quiet. Children working in groups, sharing ideas, solving problems are just often viewed as you're just noisy, it's chaotic, and these are just interruptions to the school day. Telling a child to sit down and be quiet actually prevents children from doing the three major things that they need to do the most. Move around, touch stuff, and talk. <laughs> so I haven't heard a teacher say sit down and be quiet. And I spent a lot of time in classrooms, you know, up until I moved to teletherapy. So maybe that's more of a preschool thing or like an older, old school thing. I'm not really sure. I feel like I've heard 
teachers tell, I mean, maybe not together. I've heard them go, sit down, be quiet, yeah. quiet hands, quiet feet, you know, like all those. Oh, sure. Yeah. Maybe it came across a little bit. Um, maybe she used an exclamation point and that made me feel like it's like more me. <laughs> it's like, sit down and sit be down quiet. And be quiet. I'm like, I don't know about that. <laughs> we should ask ourselves what kind of learning is going on when everything is put away. When everyone is sitting still, when everything is quiet, children really need to be moving through their environment, manipulating materials, problem solving, and asking questions. She has a list that she calls discussion destroyers. So we're going to go over those one at a time. Uh, but discussion destroyers prevent us from having engaging conversations. And it's important to remember that discussion destroyers are nothing more than habits, which can be broken with time and commitment. So don't get down on yourself if you're like, oh, I do that a lot. You know, Lisa herself said that this really helped her become engaged and aware in the different behaviors that she was exhibiting. And she decided she just didn't want to do them anymore. After that, she was very patient with herself. And then finally, she recorded herself with the children so that she could listen to how she spoke to and with them. And she says that recording herself with the kids to analyze how she spoke to them was like a real eye opener <laughs> and helped her to break a lot of habits. But you have to be ready to do that work because it might be too eye opening and you don't want to have a crisis. So make sure you're ready to do the work. She says that we don't do discussion destroyers on purpose to be mean, but we do them because we don't know any better or maybe because we're on autopilot and not really listening to what we're saying. So it takes time, patience and commitment to change your mind. Discussion destroyer number one is asking a child a question that you already know the answer to. Ooh. So Lisa says that she was informed by her own mentors not to do this, but she still did it. <laughs> so her example is once she walked over to a child who was painting and said, what colors are you using? And the child like looked at her, looked at the painting and then yelled out, Miss Lisa doesn't know her colors. <laughs> And that is a call out. Yeah, <laughs> it's really hard, especially when you work in early intervention. This is something that parents really need to hear. There is so much of this looking at a book and just going, what's this? What's this? Pointing and asking what's this to kids. And people are always posting on Instagram or wherever it's telling parents instead of saying, what's this? You know, just make a comment. But this, the way she puts it, don't ask the question that you already know the answer to. I'm sure I don't say what's this, but I'm sure there's lots of other times that I ask another type of question that's just silly, you know? Yes. I think she says it a little bit later on, but she says, like, it's really a quiz for the child. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's so... It's a test. <laughs> Yikes. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> so she says, like, if you watch a child using blue and yellow to make green, interrupting her experiment to ask, oh, what colors did you use? Is not engaging her in a discussion. It's testing her instead of celebrating the process and the discovery of making the color green. So instead, you might ask something like, do you need anything else? Or look at that. Or even what else can I get for you? So she says that ultimately she finds in these situations that a supportive, encouraging, nonverbal gesture, like maybe you just kind of like push the paint a little closer to her, is all the adult interaction that's really necessary in that moment. Discussion destroyer number two is disregarding a child's answer to a question because you are hunting for the right answer. 
So Lisa tells a story about one teacher who asked her class what day it was, to which every child had an answer. None of them were right. Like, what day is it? It's the weekend. It's my birthday. <laughs> it's Monday. It's not. But eventually one of the children said Friday. And it was the right answer. And the teacher is like, yay, good job. And everyone else is quiet. And then all of a sudden, like every kid had a comment to make about Friday and what they eat for dinner on Fridays and what they're doing next Friday. And it was just a whole different discussion than the teacher had planned. However, the teacher just like interrupted the discussion because now it's time to sing the Days of the Week song and let's get back on schedule. So, of course, Lisa does not like that because she does not like the schedule. So she said talking about it, whatever it may be, facilitates a child's ability to put thoughts into words. So it encourages communication skills and helps the child to develop awareness of others outside of herself. And this is an important task when it comes to self-regulation and the development of executive functioning skills. Discussing things assists in language development, exposes children to new vocabulary, and encourages them to use their imagination as they create mental pictures to attach to someone else's story. So schedules just rarely make time for those important things. Yeah. And what I pictured here, imagine, so you've got the teacher who's just sitting there for however long going, no, does anybody know what day it is? No, it's not that day. It's not that day. You know, and if she just started it with good morning class, today's Friday. What do you guys do on Fridays? Right. Starting it off with today's Friday and getting that discussion going versus the quiz. It's just so absurd. Right. <laughs> and, and that's the way. I know. And especially when everyone's everyone's answer is like valid, right? I mean, obviously, if they say it's Monday and it's Friday, no, but to also put somebody on a pedestal because they know it's Friday. Yeah, I don't know. It just when she's like, every kid's quiet, and the teacher's like, you got it right. Like, that's kind of a bad feeling. you know? Yeah, well, that's the way a lot of classes are. I know. Don't beat yourself <laughs> up. Discussion destroyer number three is anytime you say someone already said that, Lisa says the next time you're interacting with children in a way that requires them to provide you with responses, like maybe a vote or like suggesting words to a song, practice not saying someone already said that. And this is because young children are the center of their own universe and are often completely unaware of the other children around them. So it's tempting to think that preschoolers are just trying to pull one over on you or like be silly, but it's more likely that they're not listening or they didn't hear what the other child said first. And really, even if they did, so what? You can just say it again. Yeah. Discussion destroyer number four is asking children simple yes or no questions. So this is something I think as speech therapists, we're pretty well versed in. So it's always a better idea to ask children open-ended questions that promote thought and discussion instead of yes, no, or close-ended questions. But you need to make sure that you really care about the child's response and that you're willing to take the time to wait for it. It takes children time to respond to questions. So intentional, thoughtful questions can spark lively debates, discussions, and conversations between children and other children, adults and other adults, and children and adults altogether. Discussion destroyer number five is asking fake questions. So she says there are two kinds of fake questions. The first kind are those that appear to be choices but are not really. So an example of this would be, are you ready for bed? And of course, I have to point out, I think we all learned this during speech therapy. <laughs> when you ask the kids, okay, do you guys want to work on your S now? And they're just like, no. <laughs> or like, can you sit down? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Only takes a couple of times to get that answer before you're like, okay, time to sit down. Time to work <laughs> on your ass. So don't ask a question if it's not really a choice. And it's better to phrase it like a statement. So it's time to go to bed. And the other kind of fake question that comes up is when we forget how literal young children are. So when you ask something like, can you go put this on the shelf? A three-year-old will look at you and say, yes, just like you said. <laughs> can you sit down? <laughs> yes. But will you? That's a different question. <laughs> and then there's a little sidebar in the book that talks about the secret for avoiding discussion destroyers. So Lisa says that most importantly, you should not overthink it. And this takes time. And taking the time seriously to think about what is coming out of your mouth. So is it clear, consistent, direct, open-ended? Are you patient? Are you hurried? Do you have the time to wait for the response? Everyone's busy, but there's nothing more important than the relationships you are cultivating in your homes and classrooms. And relationships grow out of relevant, meaningful conversation. And I also just find, as I'm talking to you about this, Laura, that I feel like this happens all the time when we read books like this, like something kind of shamey where we're like, oh, no, I feel shame. I feel so much shame. <laughs> A lot during this book. <laughs> and then they're always like, don't worry. It yeah. just takes time to change yourself. <laughs> well, I think that with these, I love her discussion destroyers. All of her discussion destroyers are totally valid. As soon as you read it, you go, Oh my gosh, she's so right. Yeah. These are things we all do naturally when we talk to kids. Yes. And we have to stop doing them. And if you want to change the way you're talking to kids, maybe you look at these discussion destroyers and you focus on one and you say to yourself, am I asking questions I already know the answer to? Yes. And then you focus just on that in all your sessions this week with kids and you go, I'm not going to do that. But some of the other ones, like when you say someone already said that or whatever, it reminds me when we interviewed Tara Sumter, right. one of the most poignant things she said was, you know, when we're talking about communication, you're asking a child to take something from inside of them and put it out into the world to be judged. And yeah, when you just shoot a kid down, when you say, what day is it today? And they say, it's the weekend. And you go, no. Or if they say an answer and you say, Johnny already said that. When's the next time that kid, maybe if that's a shy kid, right. when's the next time they're going to volunteer an answer if you just shot them down and judged their response, you know? Yeah, totally. These gave me a lot to think about. And I think we can work to slowly implement them. And now that we know, now that they've been pointed out to us, we can avoid them. Yes, yeah, self-reflection goes a long way. So children are processing their observations and experiences by talking all day long. When we encourage and facilitate discussions, we help children to understand their world and how it works. This is why it's important to use descriptive language when we're pointing out objects or talking to children. When adults talk through their day and think out loud, they're showing children how to identify a problem, consider a solution, make a plan, and take action. So her example is if you're with the kids, maybe in a speech therapy group, and you're like, oops, I forgot to grab my die for the game you're playing maybe the board game oh no I don't have a die oh what are we gonna do hmm, maybe we can use this spinner instead or maybe we'll make like a little die out of some paper you know it's like problem solving in the moment just talking out loud so they can see your thought process goes so far and we're also modeling impulse control and the power of reflecting on a situation instead of just reacting so Lisa calls this putting yourself on speakerphone so all the kids can hear 
And it also encourages the children to be patient and thoughtful, as well as mindful of their actions. And by watching and hearing adults think out loud, children are able to observe the problem-solving process in action. So we are always modeling the skills that we want them to develop. Learning how to communicate with others is a skill that remains long after, I love how she said this, long after the preschool art has disintegrated in boxes in the attic. (laughs) So young children can easily acquire the skills needed for effective problem solving when the adults in their world are consistent, patient, and committed. And when, of course, they use good communication skills themselves. So Lisa was once told by somebody, if you want them to do it, do it. And if you don't want them to do it, don't do it. (laughs) That's so simple, but I was like, you know, it's a good reminder. Yeah. (laughs) We cannot develop effective problem-solving skills in children if we can't do it ourselves. So it's up to us to take ownership of the process of teaching problem-solving skills. And we can't just throw children back into their playground battles over the shovel, like with comments like, go use your words. So if you haven't taken the time to teach and model what you really want them to say, then saying something like go use your words is just kind of taking an easy way out and honestly just like not going to work. So it's incredibly important to be specific when talking with young children. Have you taught them effective language? Have you modeled what they should say when they're fighting over the shovel? Unless children have been coached on what tools to use, they'll grab the closest at hand and those will not necessarily be the most effective, even if they're the ones that are the most comfortable and familiar for that child. It's important for adults not to interfere with the negotiation of children making requests of each other. So this is an example, like both kids want to turn on the swing. Teachers should not get in the middle, mandating sharing or setting timers. The process of children learning to share or ask for a turn on the swing when the other child is done is a process that takes time. And as adults, we really need to trust in that. So eventually kids realize they get to have or use whatever the something is until they're done with it. And then when they're done, somebody else might want it. And then in turn, once the second kid gets it, she knows she gets it until she's done. So after a couple of weeks, no one is hoarding anything out of a fear that they're like never going to get to use it again. And once children know this to be true, they'll relinquish things easier because they're actually done with them and they no longer need to hold on to something to fulfill some need for power and control. And that was kind of eye-opening for me too. I think that's one of those things that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. Like, I feel like I would want to step in and be like, okay, let's set the timer for five minutes for him on the swing. And when the timer's up, you get your turn. I think it can just feel a little messier for kids to sort it out themselves. Yeah. I think that that whole scenario would take a lot of patience on the part of the adult as the kids figure things out. What did she say about that? You just say, oh, you get it when he's done. What are you going to do while you wait? Right. Just giving them those tools for dealing with that time. And that, I mean, that teaches important executive functioning skills, that response inhibition or waiting. I mean, impulse control. Yeah, impulse control. Just waiting. Maybe even empathy for others. They want to use a swing like you want to use the swing. You know, maybe understanding that Mm -hmm. feeling. Yeah. It's important to remember really that not all children come to us having had this behavior modeled to them. So if an older child joins your class, 
You'll want to remember that he may not have the same knowledge that a child who has been with you since they were an infant has because you've been modeling that for them and you don't know what's been going on with that older child. So it's good to be patient and explain things. And Lisa says that the same modeling process holds true for teaching children how to speak up when they feel they have been harmed or wronged. So saying things like, I had it first, or he took it, it's mine, you know, those are things we hear a lot in the school. And it's important to never allow a child to be a victim. So if someone gets hit on the playground or in the classroom, the first thing we do is encourage the child who got hit to yell something like, don't hit me, with a loud voice. (laughs) (laughs) And an exclamation point, of course. So it's important to teach children over and over again how to use a big voice when saying no, not just like a little whiny, like, They need to find the power in themselves and in their voices as they learn how to solve their problems. So don't pay a lot of attention to the child who did the hitting because then this removes the power from the act of hitting and it also deflates the possibility of receiving negative attention, which some children crave. I read that little paragraph over and over and was just like, oh my goodness. I mean, I love the idea of teaching kids from a really young age. You're not a victim. Things don't just happen to you. Like you can stand up for yourself, speak up when something happens. And then also just that idea of not giving a lot of attention to the hitter. So huge because a lot of kids just really, they love any attention they can get, right? Oh, yeah. I, I actually was thinking of my daughter when I was reading this because, you know, she's getting ready to go into kindergarten. So the right age for the book. And she comes home and she'll tell me like, blah, 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 pinched me today. This person did this. And I'll ask her like, well, what did you do? And she'll say like, oh, I cried. And I would love to just be like, you say like, don't pinch me like really loud to them. Yeah. (laughs) Stand up for yourself. Tell her. Use your big voice. Yeah. Just let it out. Yeah. Then she talks about tattling, which I think we all struggle with. So I was like, oh, I'd love to hear about this. She says it's just another natural byproduct of having a large number of children interacting with each other over any amount of time. So we need to remember that some children might not have learned how to problem solve this situation effectively. And as educators, we can't skirt our responsibility of teaching children the words that they need in order to solve their problems. And children know from both verbal and nonverbal cues that the teacher is there to help when they need it. So they need to be there to engage, involve, model, and assist as children learn how to solve their problems. Because the ultimate goal is for the child to be able to communicate successfully with others on their own without needing to constantly rely on a grown-up to help them. There are also times along the way when you just need to back off and trust the children and that they can begin to handle things for themselves. So it's sometimes best to let children play alone without a lot of hovering grown-ups around. This is also for like your sanity. So you don't have to be involved in every single little thing that happens and just would drive you crazy. And she says when preschool programs toss the importance of social and emotional skill development out the window in exchange for more rigorous academic technological preparatory skill development, they're depriving children of skills necessary for their future social and academic success. And high quality programs focus on the four domains of DAP, social, emotional, physical, language, literacy, and cognitive. So she has this part in the book, and I'm going to read it directly because it was really good. (laughs) So she says, in set for success, building a strong foundation for school readiness based on the social emotional development of young children, which is the title of an in-depth report published by the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation. 
Researchers summarized how social and emotional competence sets the foundation for school readiness. In the report, they say, research evidence from the National Academy of Sciences and others has demonstrated that children entering school with well-developed cognitive and social skills are most likely to succeed and least likely to need costly intervention services later, either through special education or juvenile justice. The science of early childhood has repeatedly provided evidence that strong social emotional development underlies all later growth and development. So I bet Lisa put that one in her binder, you know, gonna whip that out later when she needs it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that really packs a punch, right? Yeah, it really does. I mean, this whole this whole chapter had me thinking a lot about Marilee Springer and our book from what month was that? April, Um, Social Emotional Learning and the Brain. Mm -hmm. If anybody's listening and didn't hear that month, you might want to go back. That was a really good read. But just, you know, she talks a lot about thinking out loud to demonstrate for kids your internal process, your problem solving, the way you think about other people, you know, saying out loud, like, I'm really hungry for apples. I wonder if Jane's hungry too. You know, just talking out loud so kids hear your thoughts and that helps so much for them to develop social skills, I guess, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, she makes some really good points coming up about, yeah, why it's really important and kind of bigger societal issues that Mm -hmm. could be coming from, you know, turning our focus away from social emotional readiness and looking towards other things. So yeah, yeah, she said, the authors of that report maintain that all of the developmental domains work together to strengthen a child's chance of school success. So it stresses that social and emotional well-being must be a priority if our goal is to have children entering school ready to learn and succeed. And we've been ignoring social and emotional skills for such a long time that they often require an extra boost, which I think Marilee Springer definitely brought up because that sounds really familiar. But she said school readiness is intimately tied with social and emotional development and being ready to learn requires a lot more than just knowing your ABCs and numbers. And she points out that, you know, everybody knows a child who can like say her ABCs, do a little ballerina dance, play the violin, (laughs) name geometrical shapes, count to 100 in Spanish and English and, you know. But the fact remains that when a child takes her shovel on the playground, she will have a full on meltdown, right? So she knows her shapes, but she doesn't have the skills to get her shovel back or to emotionally regulate herself. Yeah. And children who do not learn how to problem solve, discuss conflict and communicate with others turn into grown-ups who can't do it either. So that's kind of like the kicker. Yep. <laughs> Is it's no surprise that most adults who get fired from their jobs don't get fired because they can't do their work well, but it's more often because they lack social and communication skills. Yeah. Children who are kicked out of childcare centers don't really get kicked out for not knowing their ABCs or how to tie their shoes, but it happens because they're biting, kicking, hitting, which all indicates an absence of problem-solving skills and social skills. Yeah. So when social and emotional competence is sacrificed in the name of knowing the ABCs, no one is really getting ready for anything. Like, does it really matter if she can count to 100 if she's scared to get off the bus? Does it really matter if he can identify all the colors if he doesn't feel comfortable asking questions to clarify about the assignment he was just given? And that quote from that set for success report that I read from the book tells us that children who lack social and emotional competence when they begin kindergarten 
are often plagued by behavioral, emotional, academic, and social development problems that follow them into adulthood. And in an additional article, the report was summarized by saying parents can increase a child's chance of success in kindergarten by fostering confidence, curiosity, motivation, cooperation, and the ability to communicate. So Lisa tells a story about a time where she received a phone call from a woman asking about her program. And of course, Lisa's like, oh, we do all these different play things and art, and she's really excited about it. And the woman stopped her and said, well, my neighbors told me that if I put my daughter in a social emotional preschool like yours, she'll never be ready for kindergarten. At which point Lisa, you know, told her, well, actually, a social emotional preschool is really the only kind of program that prepares children for kindergarten. And then she starts sharing there are piles of research that confirm the fact that the only children who benefit long term from an early preschool experience are children who have been in child centered play-based social emotional programs. So even despite all this evidence, you know, that Lisa's throwing out, the woman denied Lisa's invitation to come and observe the program and said she just couldn't take the risk of her daughter Mm -hmm. not being ready. And I think when I was reading this, especially what's coming up, I was just thinking about everyone I know who really is so focused on academic preschool programs and it comes from that place of fear yeah of like I think as a society we really do view play as a waste of time and so people think like if my kid's just going to be getting dirty and playing all day are they going to fall behind what's going to happen and that can be a real motivator you know I feel like we keep saying it and we're kind of preaching to the choir when we're talking to SLPs. Of course. When I'm posting things on Instagram or wherever, you know, I feel a little bit weird, but some people respond with, you know what? Parents have not gotten the message. So we have to keep saying it. We just have to keep saying it and saying it and saying it because right. there are a lot of people who don't know. Yeah. I think that's good to remember. You know, we are not necessarily the average consumer of this information so Mm -hmm. and she does point out you know we all want to do what's best for our children and often what's being sold as the best is actually not so lisa mentions a man who teaches toddlers how to read and she said he sees it as providing a service but lisa sees it as more of a trap that catches well-meaning parents and makes them think that by not teaching their babies how to read They're somehow providing a disservice for their children. But in actuality, it's the opposite. So some phrases you might want to like be on a lookout for is beware of anyone who says something to you like, oh, if your child doesn't know how to read or write or know the alphabet or know numbers by the time he's two or three or four or five, he'll never succeed. Or people who say like, well, college choices really hinge on a child's performance in preschool. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm sure people are out there saying those things. And I thought maybe they only said that in like New York City or some sort of high powered, intense environment. But I will tell you, when I was in kindergarten and my parents had, I guess, maybe a parent teacher conference, the teachers were really concerned. They told my mom she does not know her colors. And she is not learning to read. And I think my mom was like, well, she's five. Right, of course. But they were really concerned. And my mom was just like, you were not ready yet. You just weren't ready. And then in first grade, that was when my brain was ready. Everything clicked, you know. So your performance at this age, at preschool, at kindergarten, is not in terms of academics. Yeah. Is not 
indicative of future success. I have a master's degree. <laughs> if you didn't know. <laughs> you just don't know. At this age, kids develop at such different rates. And this is just so silly. It's so silly to put so much pressure on them when they're so young. Yeah, definitely. She said, if you really look deep enough, people who say these kinds of things are really ultimately just selling something. Yeah. So they're definitely trying to prey on your emotions, trying to coerce you to purchase their product. And ultimately, they don't really have an interest in you or your child. They just want your money. But because of our desire to provide for our children and do what we think is best, we become like kind of easy targets and just buy the like, do it quick, do it now, bigger, better, faster sales pitch. And then meanwhile, you know, the kids are standing by twisting their hair and their nails are, you know, down to the nubs and they're stressed and they're having like headaches and other issues. But, you know, at least they can count to 100. At least they can spell their name and they know their shapes and colors. So she says it reminds her of the fairy tale, the emperor's new clothes, <laughs> you know, where he's naked and nobody will tell him. And Lisa says that finally, like, it's time for all of us to just stand up and say, like, hey, that guy is naked. <laughs> <laughs> And she's like, how far are we willing to go to secure our child's place in this dog and pony show? Like, what are we sacrificing? When will this stop? And I feel you, girl, I get it. You know, she says the best way that we can provide our evidence is to circle back to the binder challenge that she mentioned in the introduction. And as teachers, you know, educators and providers, we have a professional responsibility and an obligation to develop the ability to discuss and communicate our understanding of the research and the knowledge that supports what we're doing, and especially playful learning. So when we're able to support that, you know, playing with water, cotton balls and eyedroppers is really teaching kids about absorption or jumping off of rocks is really teaching them about gravity. There's more to creating a high quality program than having the right equipment and an informal brochure that says, well, we believe in developmentally appropriate practice. It's really time to use the research, support the classroom practice, especially when it supports playful learning. And then, you know, some things to think about if you're asking yourself some questions would be, how does my program make time for open-ended discussions? Do I struggle with problem-solving skills in my own life? What is my comfort level with allowing children to figure out things for themselves? That's a good one. <laughs> Do I currently send them off unprepared to use their words? How often are you using descriptive words? Do you find yourself trapped by discussion destroyers? And I like the last one, which is what is one thing I can do Monday to begin making more time each day to discuss? So yeah, I really liked this chapter. I thought it brought up a lot of things for me personally, where I'm like, okay, there's a lot of room for improvement. I know. <laughs> Always. I feel like I'm going to be thinking about it a lot when I see my clients this week and then maybe on the next episode or in the future when we're discussing this book. I'll report back if there were times where I stopped myself from saying something or I used one of her strategies and something special happened, you know, Definitely. because I do think that I just really like the way she thinks about these things. Yeah, me too. She's always giving us a new perspective, which I really love. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone, for sticking around, for listening to Chapter 13 from Lisa Murphy on Play. We're loving this book, and we can't wait for next episode where we discuss Chapters 14 and 15. See you then. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrienne. 
At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.